recorded live. Welcome to IEQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. have changed. Good day wherever you're listening from and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio for Friday, February 11th, 2004. This week, episode 196 comes to you from Studio C in beautiful McKees Rocks, Pennsylvania. My name is Joe Hughes, Radio Joe. Here with me in the studio is the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. Good to be back with you, Joe. Good day, Cliff. Back in PA. A little chilly there last night. Yeah. Getting off that plane. At the controls is our engineer, Austin Stone Cold Novak. If you smell what the rock is cooking. Rock. All right, today's segments include the IAQ radio trivia question and interview with Larry Robertson, IEQ veteran and first president of the Indoor Air Quality Association. We'll have our quick halftime today, then we'll go back to the interview and go to our roundup with our technical director, Dr. Dietrich. Wow. Check out our new Facebook page when you get a chance at uh, IAQ radio program. We've also been updating and adding that blog faithfully every week on Saturday after the show. Check it out at iaqradio.com. Before we get started, we want to thank our marquee sponsors. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at johndon.com management magazine your source for cleaning and maintenance news visit them at cleanfacts.com and cmmonline.com please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of iq radio when you inquire about their services and products all right to contact the show you can just follow the link on our invitation that says go to the show you can go to uh, talk shoe you can either use the talk shoe pro or the talk shoe just join as a guest button join as a guest doesn't require any downloads and uh, you can follow any conversation between folks on the on the program you can also download the show through uh, by going to iaqradio.com just go to the link that says go to the show and, of course, you can stream the show right from our homepage on the iaqradio.com website. And last but not least, we are available on iTunes, and we're working on getting them up on that Facebook page, too. There will be a link there. Don't forget, we also have ABIH, 
IICRC and ACAC renewal credits by emailing me and requesting a quiz at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Let's turn it over to the Z-Man for today's IAQ Radio trivia question. Thank you, Joe. Win a cool prize by outcompeting fellow IAQ radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IAQ radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is very easy. Email it to cslotnick at cs.com. Or if you're listening to the show live, you can just text in your answer. Congratulations. To John Lapotere, MicroShield Environmental Services in Winter Springs, Florida, for answering last week's correct question, correctly identifying 16 CFR Part 238 as the part of the U.S. Code of Federal Regulations that provides guidance regarding bait and switch advertising. Nice job and fast. The IQ Radio Trivia question for Friday, February 11th, 2011 has been sponsored by Cochrane & Associates, the indoor air quality industry's dedicated marketing and public relations firm. Now for this week's trivia question. What are the two meanings of the Latin prefix myco, M-Y-C-O? Back to you, Joe. All right. Thank you, Cliff. This week's guest is Larry Robertson, uh, the Indoor Air Quality Association's first president and a founding board member. He's been a leader in the IAQ research and services for over two decades now. Mr. Robertson is known as establishing Mycotech Biological Inc., one of the first environmental laboratories that specialized in the identification of fungi and their association with HVAC systems. He also contributed in the initial development of the CIE and CMR certification programs and served on the Texas Mold Task Force relative to development of mold regulations in the state of Texas. Larry was also the co-founder of Indoor Environmental Consultants, Home Diagnostics, Pierces 1, Pierces 2, Laro, Microfungi, Inc., and the Aeromycological Society of America. He has recently divested from all those entities and formed the Robertson Environmental Consulting Group to provide consulting and indoor environmental services through a network of consultants and remediators across the country. We're happy to have Larry on the show today. I think we have some good Hey, Larry, do we have we're having problems with the music today? But do we have you on the line, Larry? Yes, I'm here. I want to uh, say thank you very much to you and Cliff. It's an honor to be on the program today. Oh, we're, we're thrilled to have you. Yes, we've been looking forward to this one, Larry. You're a well-known gentleman in the IAQ arena. You were around back in the early days, and we're looking forward to talking a little bit about this uh, this industry, where it's been, and where it's going. 
you um, were known for starting that Mycotech Biological, and I'm um, curious, where is it now, and are the new, you know, what are, how are the new owners doing with your baby there? Uh, well, uh, Mycotech, or MBI, which uh, it was sometimes called, was, uh, I sold that in uh, 2006 to a gentleman named Chris Wardlaw. Uh, Mr. Wardlaw was the uh, laboratory manager at the time that we were operating, and he was also a, a former student of the same mycological professor I had when attending Texas State University. Ironically, Mr. Wardlaw and MBI's new place of business is located in Dripping Springs. And <laughs> if you have any knowledge of uh, what happened in the IAQ mold-related industry in the early 2000s, you'd recognize that as the legal epicenter of mold litigation. Dripping Springs was that location of the of the Ballard home in the infamous lawsuit against Farmer. Were you involved with that case at all, Larry? Tangentially. Oh. Just tan- tangentially. Uh, of course, Chris's location in Dripping Springs doesn't have anything whatsoever to do with that old legal battle. It just merely represents where uh, Chris and his family uh, decided to settle down. I see. And that, so the lab's still up and running? And I, oh, yeah. I, I mean, the in, lab. In a, re- in a recent conversation with him, he indicated things were going great guns. It, it, it might be important to note that uh, Chris and I basically have some uh, different business ideas and philosophies with regard to running the laboratory. Not that one idea or philosophy is any better than the other. They're just different. When, when I ran MBI, I focused on national and international markets. And we had uh, customers that we served coast-to-coast in the United States, but also had uh, customers in England, Spain, Puerto Rico, and the Virgin Islands. And I believe we even had a couple of uh, projects down in uh, South America. We grew the lab from the original two employees to over 35 employees sometime in the mid-2000s. Wow. And And we were, of course, you know, that's where we had a national presence when... When Mr. Wardlaw took it, he kind of redirected the focus uh, to a more of a regional market in Texas. I think a lot of labs have done that. A lot of the, you know, if they're not, if they don't have numerous uh, locations around the country, I think a lot of people have kind of scaled back and and stuck to a more local clientele, I guess it would be. The other thing is, um, uh, I guess... With and we're going to talk more about this later. With the Texas state regulation, you have to be licensed now as a laboratory in Texas. Is that accurate? That's correct. Okay. Have to be, have to be licensed as a laboratory oh. to perform mold identifications and reports. Well, before we get more into Texas, I think Cliff's got another question. For yeah, you. sure. What's your feeling, Larry, on um, the amount of sampling that's being done uh, mold-wise these days to compare? to, you know, what it was done during really the heyday. Do you think that uh, consultants are doing more samples on a project today, the same amount or less? Oh, good heavens, I would probably have to say they're probably doing more. Okay. Okay. There, there, there was a general shift in the, the whole concept of sampling uh, through the onset of this industry. Initially, uh, the types of sampling that were done involved uh, basically airborne uh, samples that were cultured. And the use of the sport track te- technology really wasn't uh, 
really wasn't a prime prime source. And then we saw an increase, and basically uh, an increase in the sport trap technology, and a decrease in the culture, primarily because cult, uh, the consultants wanted more immediate results, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the culturing of, uh, of aerosols has generally fallen back, which uh, I think is a little, a little problematic, especially with uh, some of the issues that have emerged with regard to sport trap precision and things of that nature. And we'll, we'll also get into that a little bit more uh, as we go into the interview. interview. But before we do, um, I want to kind of update listeners on what you've been doing. How are you uh, keeping yourself busy these days? And uh, I noticed we've, in the introduction, mentioned that you've got a new venture, Robertson Environmental Consulting Group. Um, you kind of were under the radar for the last five years or so, Larry. How are things going? What have you been up to? And what's the plans for the future? Uh, well, probably under the radar uh, nationally a little bit longer than that. Just actually before, uh, just before selling MBI back in 2001, I assembled a group of partners and formed a, a company called Indoor Environmental Consultants, which basically um, assimilated the entire spectrum of uh, IEQ assessments that Microtech was doing at that time. And I served as uh, the technical technical director that company for eight years, oversaw the activities of both uh, seven to ten consultants doing a variety of IAQ work, but I was also the principal consultant uh, utilized in legal projects involving witness, expert witness from old cases, and that in itself was no small potatoes. I, w- I would estimate that between 2002 and 2007, I probably averaged 250 cases a year. Wow. which was handful. I mean, the sheer volume of work that uh, that I was dealing with with regard to legal cases, it was just really, really difficult to get out. I had planned to go to numerous com- conferences and expositions in those periods of times, but essentially had to cancel due to the basic helter-skelter nature of litigation schedules and such. And later after when all of that waned, I still continued to work as a technical director, started doing some research, and I did some uh, publications and presentations a few times. But, uh, yeah, I hadn't really been out on the national scene too much, but uh, have been extremely busy. In uh, October of 2009, I sold out my interest in IEC to my remaining partners, but entered into a contractual agreement to continue to work for them as in an advisory capacity and to work on high-profile and legal cases that they had. That contract expired just this last October, and I began tossing around ideas of what I was going to do next and decided on the formation of this new entity, Robertson Environmental Consulting Group. And how's that going so far? Is it uh, well? Let me let me back up for just a second, Larry. I'm curious. I didn't know you were working on that many legal cases, and I'm I'm a little curious. Are most of those local to the Texas area, or are they all over the place? Uh, is it a mix of both? Now, most of those were local uh, to the Texas market. We had just had it, and in what I call the the mold wars in Texas, uh, it was. 
an incredible four-year period where it was pretty much started with the, uh, the notoriety that the Melinda Ballard case had, uh, and it spawned itself into just thousands of more cases, uh, primarily homeowners filing against their home insurance carriers uh, relative to water damage and mold claims. Some of these other cases were outside of the state, but most of them were here locally and dealing with uh, homeowners insurance. So these were cases that um, I'm assuming were filed prior to homeowners insurance writing the policies in a way where they excluded mold coverage or at least capped it? Okay, so you were just cleaning up the the uh, big backlog of uh, lawsuits that occurred in the early 2000 and uh, area, I guess. Yes, it, it actually, even though that uh, the insurance companies began to rewrite their policies, um, it wasn't really until uh, there was a case that went to the Supreme Court here in Texas that... Uh, that ruled in favor of the insurance companies that removed any um, secondary mold from water damage. Uh, basically, even if you had, if a homeowner had a covered event, if it grew mold, intuitively you would think that uh, that would be part of the damage and it would be covered. But uh, the Supreme Court here in Texas did not see it that way, and it's pretty much that lawsuit that uh, laid everything to rest uh, with regard to litigation and mold. Now, there, there are still some cases that are that are going around. I mean, there are certainly plenty of ways that uh, people can get sued or businesses can get sued for mold, but it's just it's not the old standard homeowner's uh, insurance case. I see. Okay. Cliff? Well, I, I guess two, two, it's a two-part question, Larry. Was Texas the first state that got involved with licensing mold contractors? I believe it was, Cliff. Okay. And what effect did this mold licensing regulation have on the quality of the work being done in Texas? Did it stay the same? Did it get better? Did it deteriorate? Uh, well, that's, that's, a, that's a difficult question. I, I, I would have to say... It's a little of both. And if I look at the entire thing, I, I personally feel that the the regulations in Texas have have been a disaster. Uh, it's hard to know exactly where to begin with that question because the real answer to it is so convoluted and, and complex. Uh, the regulations really born out of a special storm of sorts that occurred here in our state, our state uh, or, or that had occurred prior to that nationally. So it's, it's really difficult to say if the work has actually improved because, in my opinion, actually the regulations were not put in place to improve the work or to protect Texans or the citizens here in our state from mold, they were actually, in my opinion, they were put in place to protect our citizens from the mold industry, from the consultants and the remediators. So actually, 
from my opinion, it's these regulations are highly punitive on IAQ and the consultants and remediators that were doing the work. Now, uh, again, it's a long and convoluted story. I don't, I don't know how detailed you want me to get into that, but well, essentially, no. I, I'm just kind of. I'd like to follow up on that. I think that's an interesting. Uh, position on, on, on the regulation, and, and you were involved in, in assisting with drafting the law, weren't you? Well, yes. I would say yes, I was involved with the, the public forums that were put out. Unfortunately, you've heard that old saying about, uh, you know, you don't ever want to see sausage or regulations. <laughs> right. Uh, trust me, I would rather see sausage made any day. Uh, this, this was a Certainly, there was a vehicle put in place by the state to take in input from the public. However, what goes on behind the closed doors uh, relative to the interests of the congressman and the lobbyists and everything that uh, goes along with that, which you have no control or input on, uh, that was going on as well. And it seemed as a result, to have the most dominant uh, impact on the regulations when they finally came out. Larry, um, Larry you mentioned lobbyists, and uh, excuse me for interrupting. Who or what groups actually had lobbyists? I mean, I could probably see the insurance industry having a lobbyist, but what other groups had lobbyists? Uh, yeah, the, uh, the builders, uh, various building contractors, uh, It, let me just put it this way. Um, if if you want to remove mold in Texas without a license, then all you have to do is call yourself a builder, a contractor, a plumber, a water damage repair company, a cleaner, a house cleaner, some kind of sanitation company, or any other host of enterprise that routinely encounters mold, but they are not required or licensed be licensed or to protect the workers or occupants from any subsequent exposures from the disturbance or removal of that mold. So if you want to, if you want to be a professional mold remediator in Texas, then you better get ready to pass a beefy test with an 80% passing rate, which by the way, all, most of the other licenses in Texas only require 70% passing grade, pay sums of money for licensing and registration and then be ready to, to pay fines ranging from inappropriate PPE to missing a remedial start or stop it, So it's, it's these, just in that, it's, it's clear that the regulations weren't put in place to protect workers or people. In my opinion, they were put in place to, as a punitive measure against the IAQ consultants and remediators which the legislators perceived as causing all of the hoopla and the legal hoopla with the insurance companies, et cetera, that had occurred a few years prior to that. Larry, let me just kind of overview for listeners that aren't as familiar as Cliff and I are maybe with the Texas regulation and the law. It essentially required that 
remediators and inspectors or assessors, consultants basically, laboratories, et cetera, all passed this licensing exam. It had to be a Texas-approved course, a Texas licensing exam. Uh, you paid your fees to Texas, et cetera. And, and I'm getting the impression now that it was kind of to put the um, mold remediation and assessment people that basically there was ground zero in Texas there back in the early late 90s and early 2000 era in their place it sounds like to some degree unfortunately but um, other states well, now go ahead I would to be fair uh, because of the well there were a couple of, of events it was the, the first release of the CDC where they said that there was a relationship with stachybotrys to this uh, the, you remember the Cleveland baby pseudorosis test there? You know, originally CDC came out and said that there was a specific leak. It wasn't, and it was highly publicized when that happened. Uh, they later rescinded a few years later, but it was not uh, given the same fan for fair publicity. And then uh, shortly after that, we had that, uh, that Ballard case that it just created uh, the the mold wars of what I call in Texas. And at that time, a whole host of individuals jumped in as overnight consultants and remediators and just simply fanned the flames of this. And in all of that, many of the, the consultants that came in were making ridiculous assertions and recommendations for remediation, sometimes based on the presence of a single spore of stachybotrys. Sometimes there wasn't even a spore of stachybotrys. Some of these consultants were actually caught baking homes uh, where they would go in with a water hose or some type of humidifying device and essentially artificially grow the mold in these homes just to increase and escalate the costs that were going to be required to fix it to be able to get more money out of the insurance companies. So it was, this was occurring, and uh, it certainly, that's what was getting the eye of the, the legislators and the insurance lobby, and certainly the builders saw it coming too. But so that those events kind of painted the whole IAQ picture for our regulators, and I think that was the basis of why the regulations might be so punitive. I see. So, and in other words, I guess if I could summarize it, they they had a point. <laughs> I mean, they they had a point. There's no doubt about it but unfortunately in that point they have appeared to completely and it's based on that single concept that after the CDC reversed themselves on the, the stachybotrys issue uh, they basically said look all you guys have been misrepresenting the effects of uh, harmful effects of mold and so this is what we're going to do to you but they completely threw out with the bathwater all of the other known and proven effects of mold in indoor environments, such as allergy and asthma-related disorders. Many of these overnighters that came in now have all left, but they have left in their wake uh, this current situation we have in our state, which I think is going to take some time to actually get that pendulum to swing back to where it was. Okay. Now... I'm curious because I just came from Florida, Larry, and in Florida they're putting in place now a licensing law, but 
they're doing it a little differently than the way Texas did it. I'm, I'm still not convinced it's the it's necessary, but um, that's just an opinion on my part. Uh, but it's there, and we have to deal with it. But they are allowing people to grandfather in. They are um, not making things so difficult that you can't do the work. In other words, they're not... Um, you know, they're not really, it doesn't seem like the intent is to punish people. It's more to kind of, you know, bring some boundaries to the industry. And they're also allowing people to get a license in Florida if they have a license through another state, etc. Are you familiar with what they're doing in Florida? And do you think it's any better than the way they handled it in Texas? Uh, from the from looking at it, I, b- I believe it is. Number, number one, in Texas, uh, again, uh, our our legislators were looking at these consultants and remediators, and they all had their they had certifications from the IAQA and maybe maybe the AMIAQ at that time, and they essentially were putting the blame of all this uh, discourse in our state on the consultants and those organizations, and in my mind, I. That's why they didn't want to have anything to do with grandfathering anything in. They Uh, just wanted to start completely uh, fresh. Whereas Florida, on the other hand, now is recognizing the positive contributions of these organizations or the IAQA and uh, are using them as a reference and a source to bring in reputable consultants and trainers. And that seems to be happening. Actually, it seems like a trend nationwide. It looks like, you know, Maryland did pretty much the same thing. Arkansas, um, let's see who else, New Orleans or um, Louisiana, they, they've been pretty loose about what they require. They're just trying to get a little, you know, a handle on things. Um, we've got to go to what we call our halftime here, but there was one other question I wanted to ask you before we did. I, it, I'll have to get to it after halftime, though, Larry. Let's go to halftime. We'll bring you right back. Right. Our association sponsors are the National Air Duct Cleaners Association, NADCA, is the leading authority for information on HVAC inspection, cleaning, and restoration. Visit NADCA at www.nadca.com. The Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit, multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. And thanks to our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental and consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions, and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. And, of course, Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleanfactswithanx.com and 
cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. All right, let's go back to our interview with Larry Robertson. And, uh, Larry, we, we had put together a couple of ideas for the show, and one of them was to discuss a little bit on HVAC cleaning and indoor environmental quality, so heating, ventilation, and air conditioning. We got the acronym police here, so we have to be a little careful with the acronyms. But there was... <laughs> Wrong button. <laughs> There, there was a, a recent study published in In the Air um, that, you know, it essentially concluded that there was no compelling scientific evidence that exists about an association between air duct cleaning and improved IEQ. And I guess that's my summary on it, but others may argue, but, you know, we can talk about that. One of the papers cited, you know, was a paper that you had published, and I'm curious um, if you've had a chance to look that over and what your thoughts are on that study and how they represented what you had published within that study. Well, I, I have some very mixed opinions about that, uh, the Cerami paper. That's the one you're referring to. Uh, uh, I mean, on one hand, with, with some exceptions, the basic, I mean, the very basic conclusions provided in the paper are valid. However, the context to which the conclusions are based are, in my opinion, so very, very narrow and limited. For example, the paper does state that no field studies have correlated poor IEQ with duct contamination. It says that in that abstract. And clearly the author feels it's appropriate to make such a statement, but that's true only if it's limited to the contamination of the duct only and not the entire HVAC system as a whole. I mean. The term bioaerosol was coined in the infamous Legionnaire's disease case, which involved an air conditioning system in Philadelphia back in the 1970s. Clearly, I mean, that's one of the most well-established cases where a field study report uh, where poor IAQ and health effects were directly correlated to an HVAC system. Yet, uh, I, I get my, my opinion is the author doesn't even recognize that. And I feel that it's grossly misleading to the audience in which that paper was intended. And specifically, the uh, I was involved in several uh, studies uh, involving gut uh, cleaning back in the late 80s and 90s that demonstrated positive impact of HVAC sanitation uh, on improved IQ. One of those papers was the Annals of Allergy, the one that you had mentioned earlier. And that paper concluded that uh, it may be an effective tool uh, in reducing airborne fungal populations in residential environments. And the only reason we use the word may is because uh, we wanted to make certain that it, it had to specifically do with the quality of the work that was being done. In other words, to make certain that the containment and capture systems were there in this process that not all duct cleaning uh, methods work, but certainly some of them do. That's the, we did another study that uh, actually it was uh, the Ahmad study. It's the first, the first uh, reference that's in the Zerami paper, uh, in which we, we had the basic same results in that, in that study as well. So clearly there are at least two references in the Zerami paper that say 
that there can be a positive impact on IAQ if these methods are done appropriately. However, it's not recognized in uh, in Zaraman's conclusion. Now, if he's only saying, well, we're only going to be looking at ventilation duct systems, well then, see, we were looking at the entire systems, but it's, it doesn't really make I think it's misleading to only look at a ventilation duct system and not the entire system in itself. It, it's, it's almost counterintuitive. For example, uh, we all know that basic household cleaning and maintenance is an important component of IAQ, but there's no specific study that correlates cleaning of a house to improved IAQ, but we know it is. Now, we could liken this study to by saying there's no evidence that vacuuming the master bedroom in a, in a residential uh, environment has any positive impact on IAQ. We know that vacuuming the resident or the master bedroom is only one small part of the total cleaning effort that must be put into place to improve IAQ. And that's sort of the, the focus, I believe, that this study took. It was so limited in its scope, that it did not include the entire dynamics of the HVAC system. And there are studies that show that there is an improvement in IAQ or the reduction of these fungal bioaerosols, which vis-a-vis is an improvement in terms of IAQ relative to exposure. And those studies are documented. So I don't know why this, uh, this study concludes that uh, there is no effect other than the fact that he may have only been looking at the duct itself. And didn't you, I mean, that's how you essentially, I think, got started in doing Mycotech Biological. It was one of the first environmental labs that specialized in the idea of fungi and their association with HVAC systems. How did, how did that come about, Larry? Well, that, that's kind of an interesting story. Uh, we were doing fungal identification for an allergist in the Dallas-Fort Worth area when this uh, Dr. Wynn would have patients uh, that tested uh, atopically positive for severe exposure to fungi, we would go in and conduct uh, evaluations of their home to buy, uh, and see what the nature of the fungal loads were in their house. And in those investigations, 95% of the time, it led us to a duct system or an air conditioning system, I should say, that was uh, contaminated with fungi. And at that time, there were advertisements out there that duct cleaning was effective in uh, removing all of this stuff. And we didn't believe it. To tell you the truth, we didn't believe it. Hmm. Uh, we designed a study that was basically going to show that where duct cleaning was not going to be effective. In fact, it was going to make it worse. Because in our mind's eye, in the researcher's mind's eye, we couldn't believe that these duct cleaners were going in there and doing anything but aerosolizing all of this stuff and making the exposure worse. And uh, it was a shock for us when the data came in and revealed that, wow, it was effective. And that's where we essentially developed that phrase that this can be an effective tool if it's done by certain specifications and, and methods. And can you elaborate a little bit on what specifications and methods are, are uh, 
vital component because we did talk a little bit about this last week when we had uh, John Schulte on from NADCA. And I just want to get the guy who did the studies to kind of elaborate on what, what are the important components in doing the HVAC cleaning or duct cleaning. Basically, the most important component, in, in, in my opinion, is the containment and capture system, as well as the whole concept of source removal. You don't just you don't go in there and spray stuff on it, and you don't just go in there with a brush. You have to have the negative errors that are hooked up to the duct system uh, to capture anything that's released during that cleaning event, and you have to go after the source of the fungal growth which is, in my opinion, 95% of the time, it's within the air handler itself and the uh, first 10 feet of the supply plenum. And so the source removal, containment, and capture, which are cornerstones to the entire NADCA philosophy, uh, those are, in my opinion, the most important concepts. Now, this initial study, and we've been, uh, this, the, we've been criticized in this study because the duct cleaners used a, a disinfectant and I want to point out that when the study was designed we didn't tell the duct cleaning companies what to do we were evaluating what they were doing as in a commercial process and that's what was they were using at the time so that's what we evaluated in a, in a subsequent study in Florida with Dr. Ahmad in that particular research project there were no biocides used whatsoever and there weren't any encapsulants used whatsoever and the net reduction in fungal bioaerosols was equivalent to what we saw in the Dallas Fort Worth study which was a key component of saying hey maybe these biocides and all these encapsulants they're really not as important as people think they are in, in our mind's eye it, it showed we can effectively clean ducts without using these chemicals so, and I don't think there's ever going to be a single study that emerges that is a perfect study where someone can go out into a building and say, okay, now we're going to perform a uh, study on duct cleaning. But if we have all these other studies that have been put in place and we take from them the knowledge that's gained from individual studies, it reveals to us not only can it be effective, but it reveals to us what are the most appropriate methods to be using. All right. Cliff, did you have a follow-up you wanted on that one? Or I, I can move to the IAQA issue because I, we're, we've got so much to cover here and we're running a little little low on time, Larry. But just, just Go one, ahead, Cliff. How do you spell the name? Is it Zerami or Zerami, uh, the one study? Uh, that it you're... is. Uh, uh, it's uh, M-S-Z, or it's M period, S period, Z-U-R. A-I-M-I. That is the author on the uh, indoor air paper, Is Ventilation Duct Clean Useful? Okay. All right. Now, Larry, you were the, as I, I didn't realize until we started to, um, you know, correspond a little bit more here before the show, I knew you had been a past president of the Indoor Air Quality Association. I didn't know you were the first president of the Indoor Air Quality Association. I guess the first president after it became a non-profit uh, or not-for-profit organization. Is that accurate? That's right. There were, 
I was uh, essentially involved with the uh, the whole concept of IAQA was born in the early to mid-1993. Uh, there were three individuals in Florida which came up with the idea. I was asked to serve on the board, and it was formed in 1994. Then later in 95 and 96, I was asked to be president for those years. And it was clear in 1996 that, that there were some problems that uh, were creating some conflicts with the potential members regarding the profit status of the IAQA. Plus, there were some uh, health effects, uh, health problems with one of the principal founders that basically led to uh, me getting together with some people and some of the what I consider to be some of the heavy hitters in the industry and uh, reorganizing this IAQA and uh, essentially putting it on a, a whole new path where uh, IAQA would buy out these other owners and we would turn it into a nonprofit organization. And it was just an incredible event when that happened. Uh, Larry, let me just, I, I like to give, I'm a history kind of guy, so I like to make sure we give credit where credit is due, and also we just keep the history accurate here. Who, do you know the names of the original people that started the organization when it was for a, for, uh, a for-profit? Oh, absolutely, and I appreciate you allowing me to, uh, to mention their names. Uh, it was Dean Ellis, Nick Willocks, and Rick Watson were the three original founders of the IAQA in 1994. What was the thing? Dean Ellis, Rick Watson, and who was the other one? Nick Willocks. Nick Willocks, W-I-L-L-O-C-K-S? Yes. Okay, and and as I understand it, they were in Florida, and they were primarily involved with HVAC. Were they HVAC cleaners, or were they um, maintenance-type people? Dean Ellis uh, ran Climate Control Services, which was an HVAC cleaning company in uh, West Palm Beach. Nick Willocks uh, actually was an editor and a publisher uh, out of uh, Longwood, Florida that ran uh, HVAC News uh, publication. And Rick Watson was a, uh, a legal lobbyist in Tallahassee. So they had the three components to put the entire program together. I see. And then they brought you on board, and uh, who else were some of the early pioneers of the early board of directors that were involved in the early formation of the organization. Now you're going to hurt my head. Yeah, <laughs> well, that's all right. We don't have... no. I, I do remember Chuck Walker uh, was also uh, involved. Chuck was also one of the early board members uh, when IAQA went uh, nonprofit as well. Okay, and then you became president, and that was in 96? Uh, well, the when we when we changed it over to the nonprofit, I believe that was somewhere in '97, and I was asked to serve president uh, then, and served through 1999, and then served one additional year on the board of directors in 2000 before basically relinquishing everything. So totally for me, I had about seven, seven and a half, eight year direct intimate involvement with IAQA. I'm, I'm curious, they have a mission statement now for the Indoor Air Quality Association, and I, I served six years in the, I guess, the early 2000, 
maybe 2003 to 2000, well, 2002, I guess it would have been the 2008 era. And this mission statement was something I always like to make sure we, you know, kind of kept our our eyes on while we were doing anything. And it is that the Indoor Air Quality Association is a nonprofit, multidisciplined organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research for the safety and well-being of the general public. Was that the original mission statement, or did that come along after it became a not-for-profit? I believe that may have been organized or developed after it became a not-for-profit. Okay. And and, and I guess we're going on, well, gee, 15 years now with the organization as a not-for-profit, and how do you think we're doing as uh, with respect to fulfilling that mission statement? I believe that they, I mean, overall, I believe that IQ is doing a great job. Just the, in my opinion, the sheer ability to put all the personal person, powerful personalities in a room and get them united behind a single premise is sometimes incredibly difficult. Um, I mean, the organization has grown from a gathering of about five people uh, in a single room to over uh, thousands of members. So, I mean, one could always criticize that they could do more and perhaps maybe a uh, looking at a revision of the mission statement is something that they could they could look at. But uh, basically, I do think that they are uh, promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information, providing education, supporting research, and, and doing those things. Good. Now, what, now there was a unification in uh, 2005, I guess it was finalized, and that was when the Indoor Air Quality Association and the former American Indoor Air Quality Council and a group called the Indoor Environmental Standards Organization unified and consolidated their programs so that IAQA got rid of their certification programs, just became membership. The former AMIAQ, which is now the ACAC, the American Council for Accredited Certification, got rid of their membership and just became a certification organization and the indoor environmental standards organization got rid of both membership and certification and just focused on standards. What were your thoughts on that idea at the time? And then uh, maybe we'll get your thoughts on how it's actually worked out after that. Well, I mean, at the time, I, I guess I was a bit hesitant, but uh, heartened by it uh, because it looked like that uh, Yet this unification was going to create uh, some type of industry consolidation, which I deemed to be good uh, to be good for our industry at that time. However, I guess what what seemed at that time to be a, uh, a great industry consolidation strategy, I'm not sure it's turned out to bear the fruits of success that was it was intended. It's very hard to be critical of anyone because hindsight, as you know, is always better than foresight. But the plain fact of the matter is I feel the strength of the industry certifications that we have have been weakened as a result of it. Why do you think – go ahead. I was going to say I, I think certification programs are extremely important. I mean someone can go to a, a college or a university and get a degree and they earn that knowledge base but when it's over it's over uh, they don't have to study anymore they don't want to 
certification programs fill that industry need by requiring the participants to continue in ongoing education and learning processes, which is a good thing. But the certifications must be directed in a manner that both improve the participant's knowledge as well as improves the standing of the certification of the whole. Now, I mean, it's a very basic concept for me. I look at the, the strength that exists behind, uh, for example, the uh, the CIH certification that's with the AIHA. I don't think anybody can argue that that is a strong certification that has a lot of clout behind it. But when I start looking at that and the certifications that we have in the IAQA business, uh, I don't think that we've achieved those goals. And it was in my mind's eye when I was involved with the development of the CIE and the CMR that they would increase and rival in strength that same degree of clout that's coming uh, with the CIH. And I just don't see that happening today. I think it's a basic philosophical difference that exists between uh, the certification programs that the IAQ had, IAQA had and the, the manner that they're being held uh, and run by the ACAC. I'm not saying that one philosophy is better than the other, uh, but if I ran a certification company, I'd probably want as many certifications as I could possibly get to increase revenues, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. However, if I'm wanting to build the strength of any one particular certification, then I'm not sure I would dilute that by adding a bunch of other certification programs, I would in some way incorporate all those other ideas and concepts to try to strengthen that one or two certification programs I have. So it's a it's different uh, philosophical mindset of, of what you do with certifications and how you strengthen them. And that's, you know, I, I guess the first example you gave is a great example of how that can be effective in that the Certified Industrial Hygienist, CIH, is, is very widely recognized and respected and um, that it's basically the only certification. I mean, they've had a couple of, you know, minor variations on the theme through the uh, American Board of Industrial Hygiene over the years, but basically that one certification has stayed consistent for i guess it's going on 50 years now we'll have a cih on here in just a moment maybe he can let us know that but um you know i tend to agree with you on that larry it's uh it's getting to the point where we've got uh you know quite a few acronyms out there cliff is there anything you wanted to add before we go to the uh roundup no no i was just it was just profound i wrote it down and I'll put it in the blog, and I don't think I ever heard it said better, whether you, you know, have one strong one like CIH and you keep building it, or you have uh, an organization that kind of goes the other way and certifies people in everything and anything, and, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's about the money, I think. All right, Larry, let's, uh, what we'd like to do is we'd like to go to a roundup. We'd really appreciate you coming on. We may run over a minute or two. Is that okay with you? fine with me. Uh, again, I want to thank you guys for having me on. Well, we appreciate it. We're going to have to bring you back because we've got a list of questions we're not going to make it to, unfortunately. <laughs> but uh, let's go to our roundup, bring on Dr. Wow, and um, take it from there. Move him on, hit him up, hit him up, move him on, move him on, hit him up, raw high. Cut him out, ride him in, ride him in, let him out, cut him out, ride him in, raw high. 
let's get Dr. Dietrich Wow on the line here. Hello, Dieter. Let's get your music first. mind there all right hello dear yeah i'm here <laughs> now I the volume goes up life because i always wanted to have breakfast with beethoven uh, <laughs> anyway two thousand uh, remarks and questions and so on uh, by the way did we have a winner for our michael question in the very beginning I believe uh, we, we got did. one. We, yes, did. we did. So you can answer it if you want. We did. No, no, no. I hope it was one of my students. I always said, said Michael comes from Greek and it's mushroom and mold. <laughs> now that's half of it. Half. Okay. What was the other half? Waxy. Waxy. That's where mycobacteria yeah, yeah, comes from. Yeah. Okay. And John Neal. Anyway, I, I think we 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 touched upon uh, it several times, as a matter of fact, on the certifications and. Um, yeah, I'm for it and I'm against it. Yeah, that just because you pass a test doesn't mean, or, or you, you you pass the boards, for instance, doesn't mean you're a great lawyer. If you pass the boards, doesn't mean you're a great uh, dentist. If you pass the boards, which is a certification type of thing, um, doesn't make you a good MD. No question about it. Um, yeah, the question arises, I mean, here we're talking about mold remediation. I mean, mold are ubiquitous all over the place, anywhere. Do I have to have a license to a certification uh, to remove dust, which is all over the place, certainly in my house? <laughs> um, and uh, we, we talked a little bit. Uh, these are just questions and remarks. I just made another remark over here. Uh, good old friend of mine, we went to school today, uh, together, Yahya Hamad, Dr. Hamad. I think he is still at the University of South Florida, if I'm not mistaken. But anyway, I haven't seen him in a long time. But <clears throat> on duct cleaning, that is another one of those things. And uh, yeah, Joe knows, uh, yeah, we, 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 we were there at the beginning when this all started, whenever, 10 years ago or so. I never heard about duct cleaning 30 years ago, other than industrial duct cleaning, when the, when the pipes were so full that the ventilation system didn't work anymore. That's about time to clean that one out. But I think also, I mean, there I would like to have somebody who knows what he is doing. And Larry mentioned that. I mean, you, you, you have to have a terrific ventilation system Otherwise, you are really screwing up royally and putting more stuff into the air, whatever it may be, including mold and bacteria and dust and dirt, whatever else is in there. And that reminds me of the old story with asbestos removal, where people said, oh, I took care of the problem. I ripped out the whole stuff, and I had a, a, a shop vac, and I cleaned up everything, and it's yeah, very, very clean right now. I know I don't have a problem. I said, well, sir, <laughs> you just you just uh, created a huge problem over there for yourself just because you picked up the dust containing asbestos on the floor doesn't mean you got it out of the air. On the contrary, the uh, shop vac will be a wonderful, wonderful aerosol 
uh, generator in, uh, in your house. But, yeah, I mean, on the other hand, I do like certifications. And, um, again, it's, 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 it's not a gold standard for everything, just because you have a, a couple of uh, initials or uh, 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 numbers or uh, 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 behind your name doesn't really mean anything. Well, the other thing is, and Larry mentioned that too, I have looked at I don't know how many ventilation systems in my uh, life. And here is the one. I mentioned that in my classes, and nobody believes me, and Larry knows exactly what I'm talking about. I looked at drip pans. There, of course, some nitwit installed the drain at the highest point, <laughs> not at the lowest, at the highest point of the drip pan. And there is stuff in there. It is unbelievable. And literally, inches away, the air is going to be sucked in. So whatever is in that drip pan is guaranteed to be in whatever it is, the office or the building or the enclosure uh, which was used uh, uh, or for which that ventilation system was used. It's unbelievable. And it's one of those things. If you don't see it, you don't believe it. I said, he is exaggerating. Larry knows I am not exaggerating. <laughs> let's, let's bring Larry back in on that. Larry, you know, Larry, I, I had a guy in my class this week, um, Dieter and Larry. His name was Bob Rousseau. Interesting gentleman. He's been cleaning HVAC systems since, I guess, 30 years now. And, and he was telling me about how they used to, um, you know, wrap a basically a sock around the end of each of the, the the fusers and then go in and just beat it with a wiffle ball bat and push things down toward the sock and then take the socks and drag them out of the building. We've come a long way, don't you think, Larry? Uh, well, yeah, but if, if he was doing that 30 years ago, he was setting a trend. He was setting a, at least a constant <laughs> trend then. Uh, hopefully uh, he is, uh, is still seeing, you know, in his mind's eye, he had the concept of what he was trying to not do, which was spread that stuff. And by the way, just quickly, the CIH, I took my exam, which at the time was a two-day, Saturday, all-day Saturday, all-day Sunday exam um, for my CIH, Certified Industrial Hygienist, when Henry Smith, my toxicology teacher and professor at the University of Pittsburgh, unfortunately he is dead now, but he lived a very long life and a very nice life. But he gave that test, I took it in the early 70s, and I think he started it, I would say, in the early 60s. So we are doing it for in round numbers 50 years or something like that. Okay, okay. Well, listen, we've got to wrap things up here, and I, I want to give Cliff a chance for any last questions he may have. I just, you know, just one last question, Larry. In the couple decades that you've been involved in this business, um, is there any opinion that's changed, you know, one that you held at the beginning and, you know, that's kind of 180 now? And if so, what is it? Oh, golly. I would say I ran into that recently with this uh, sport trap research that I've been involved with. I've always been an advocate of uh, sampling uh, because I believe that they at least provided us information, meaningful information about doing some uh, investigations and assessments. But a uh, recent study here on sport trap precision uh, has basically got me backing up in my tracks a little bit. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I think we've got to do some work with, with regard to spore trap precision to make sure that that analytical process is doing what we want it to do. Okay, thank you. I'd like to get you back to talk about that a little more down the road, Larry. And um, before we go, though, I have one. I always like to try and get from a, a veteran like yourself one tip maybe for new people in the business or even experienced people in the business who are doing either consulting or remediation, um, what would be your best tip to those that are out there that are listening in trying to learn how to do a better job at evaluating indoor environments? Well, for the consultants, is uh, pay attention to the sport trap stuff that's coming out. For both consult, uh, consultants and contractors, uh, learn the business and do the do the work right. Don't do any unnecessary or extreme behaviors. It's wrong. It's unethical. It's going to create a negative stigma for you, the business, and our industry. It's one of those things that caused the problems here in Texas that resulted in harsh regulations. And finally, if there are uh, individuals that are in the state uh, that are seeking regulations, they need to get involved. They don't not not just with the part of the government that's reaching out for help but with their own congressmen and and get make a face-to-face and talk with these issues make sure that they understand that this is a credible and important industry all right and is there anything we missed that, I, I know we missed a lot larry but i guess any one last comment that you'd like to make that or add anything and uh, how can listeners contact you well i i do have i hate to close on a sad note but uh just uh, two days ago, Dennis Morgan, a longtime friend and IAQ associate uh, in Florida, died with complications arising from pancreatic cancer. Dennis, uh, who we lovingly call Captain Morgan, was one of my right-hand men in the early development of the IAQA. He served on the board and was the man when it came to organizing conferences and exhibitions back then. I, I wanted just to acknowledge and honor him on this program and we'll miss him terribly uh, just on give us to... just give us a minute um on on that note oh austin's good Okay, Larry, duly noted. Thank you, Joe. All right. We want to thank our... On a happier note, I hope to see and visit many of you next week at the IAQA conference. You can reach me at uh, www.robertsonenvironmentalconsultinggroup.com. The toll-free is 800-288-3828. And my email is ldr at tisd.net. 
Thanks a lot, Larry. We want to thank Larry Robertson for joining us this week. We'll post his contact information on the Facebook page after the show. And I also want to make sure I thank our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow, of course, for joining us. Uh, the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick, for another great week. It's always the, my pleasure to do it. In the studio here, of course, uh, Austin Stone Cold Novak for handling the controls. But most importantly, our growing group of loyal listeners, another great week of downloads. Keep them coming. Please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production. Call recording has been completed.